Luke chapter 24. Luke gives us the accounts, these accounts in the shadow of the resurrection that we too might learn how to live in the shadow of the resurrection. So let us give our attention then to the reading of God's holy word, which is given under the inspiration of the Spirit. It's perfect and without error and is fit to accomplish all of God's purposes. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word endures forever. So I'll read Luke 24, verses 13 through 27. After words, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. You can respond with thanks be to God. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. Give your attention to God's holy word. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth? They replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us, that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures, Concerning himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Luke is very careful to give us a clear definition of biblical faith in his gospel. He unfolds it in, in various pictures, but he is very careful to show it to us and to make sure that the reader, the hearer of his gospel, comes away understanding the necessity of faith, the importance of the faith, and a clear idea of what it is. This is what he does as he winds his gospel down. He so often uses the the contrasting picture of human eyesight, what we take in with our eyes. We, We instinctively want to trust our eyes and all of our senses, and we do. If any of you have ever been involved in one of those team-building expeditions, and at some point during the day, you'll probably do trust falls. You have someone stand on a platform, 
and everyone stands behind him or her with their hands out. And you're told to trust that your teammates or your friends are going to catch you, which might be more difficult for, for some than others, depending on the team or the group that's assembled. We want to trust our eyes. You want to turn around and look and make sure they're not playing some kind of joke on you. We instinctively want to trust our eyes. And, and Luke takes that instinct of ours and he lays that over the necessity of faith and our eyes of faith. That contrast is so clearly put in front of us today in this passage as we see someone who considers two, two of the followers of Jesus, they consider themselves disciples of Jesus, but at this point they are faithless and their faithless eyes behold the risen Christ and they still do not see him in the true and proper and biblical sense. They behold him with their eyes, but they do not see him. And the key to seeing Jesus with the eyes of faith, as Luke brings it forward to us today, is to see him as the one who fits the biblical pattern that's laid out for us from Genesis to Revelation. The biblical pattern of salvation and of the Messiah, which is this, that God's glory in redemption lays on the other side of suffering. And that shows us that all the things that Jesus goes through proves to us that he is the Messiah. That God's glory and salvation lays on the other side of suffering. Luke wants to make sure that we see that biblical pattern from beginning to end. And if we see that biblical pattern from beginning to end, here's our life-transforming reality. You see that biblical pattern from beginning to end, you are left with assurance that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Savior. But that biblical pattern and a proper understanding of that allows us to live in the midst of both blessing and trial. Blessing and trial. So you see Jesus go through that biblical pattern. And then as we follow him, the way of obedience and the path of the cross, following Jesus, it gives us proper understanding in both blessing and trial. So let's look at this passage then together. Verses 13 through 16 show us these two men who do not recognize the risen Lord. They do not recognize the risen Lord. And then secondly, we see Cleopas recites his creed. Cleopas recites his creed. And then finally, Jesus shows us how to read the scriptures. Jesus shows us how to read the scriptures. So first, these two do not recognize the risen Lord. Luke has been concerned with geography in his gospel. And one of the main themes is the road on the Gospel of Luke. He's been on the road to Jerusalem. And we've emphasized that again and again. Jesus' eyes have been set towards Jerusalem. And since chapter 9, he's sort of been having a, a winding journey for sure. But he's been on the road to Jerusalem, revealing who he is. And uh, these two disciples, filled with despair, on the day of the resurrection, are going out from Jerusalem... They're going out from the, the center place of God's redemptive story where everything has been pointing to. They're going out filled not with faith and power, which the disciples will do later on when they're given the Holy Spirit and they go out from Jerusalem to the very ends of the earth to proclaim the gospel in faith and in power, in work and uh, in, in words. But rather these disciples are faithless, leaving without a proper understanding of, the, of Jesus Christ, the Savior, and they're on the road. So Luke is going to once again show Jesus revealing himself and the truth of who he is on the road uh, to these 
two disciples who still stand in need of understanding fully the grace of God. These uh, two disciples, Cleopas and an unnamed disciple, which has sparked all kinds of conversation about who the second one might be. But uh, they're on the road, they're discussing all of the things that have happened. Some people have thought that this sort of creates an example for us. If uh, you speak enough about Jesus, he'll show up kind of thing. That does not seem to be Luke's emphasis here. Jesus is going to call these disciples foolish and slow of heart to believe all the things that the scripture has spoken. But they are speaking about all of these things, but they're unable to grasp the comfort that God has placed in front of them. We talked about that last week, how uh, the women get to the tomb and they see that evidence that Jesus has been resurrected and yet their souls are not comforted by it. And we see that especially here with these two disciples. They have all of the information that's going to to be contained in the proclamation of the gospel, but they've misinterpreted some some of the information because they're slow of heart to believe, and therefore they turn what would comfort them into that which brings about their despair. But we're even more confused when... Jesus himself shows up, it says, in verse 15. Jesus comes up to them, and and we think that it it would make no sense that if they're followers of Jesus, if they love the Lord and they know who he is, that they do not recognize him. So we're confused by this. But then we realize that in many of the post-resurrection accounts, this is a recurring theme, not just in Luke, but in other Gospels as well. So in the Gospel of John, Mary Magdalene, as that account is unfolded in, in the garden, the garden where the tomb is, and she is slow to recognize Jesus, recognize the risen Lord. And, and it's not what she sees that brings forth faith, right? It's not that she sees the risen Lord and then she believes, but rather it's the creative power of God contained in the mouth of Jesus Christ that brings about the realization that this is Jesus and he is risen from the dead as he calls her by name. Remember in the Gospel of John, he says, Mary. And right as he says that, just as God created this world and all that we see by the power of his word, so he brings about faith in the heart of Mary by the power of his word. So this passage and and many of the post-resurrection accounts are teaching us this, and this is really the central thrust of all the post-resurrection accounts that have this theme in them, that when it comes to the risen Christ, if you do not see him with the eyes of faith, the eyes of faith, the eyes of your heart, if you do not see him with the eyes of faith, you will not see him at all, even if he's right in front of you, even if you're beholding him with your eyes. And so Luke is emphasizing for us the centrality And the necessity of faith. But where does faith come from? Where does faith come from? We read in verse 16 that they were kept from recognizing him. The New American Standard Bible translates that verse and says, Their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. That's a little bit more of a a straight, literal translation. Their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. So this is showing us not only the inability of the human eye to see the ultimate things, but there's also an agent that's doing that preventing this is a, one of those divine passive, passive verbs that speaks of God's activity. And it reminds us of the sovereignty of God and the giving of faith. Faith is a gift of God. What has Jesus said in the midst of his ministry? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. All that the Father gives me will come to me. 
You did not choose me, but I chose you. Faith is a gift of God, and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Unless God grants faith, and unless God opens the eyes of the hearts, then people will not believe the gospel. The mission of the church is going to occupy Luke's mind after he finishes the volume of of the gospel of Luke. He's going to write the Acts of the Apostles. And uh, certainly, as we think about the mission of the church, and we look around our, our current world and we see it, we see that too often the church is concerned with how it appears to human physical eyes. We're concerned with, with our appearance and, and thinking about uh, how is it that we can make the church and the faith most appealing to people who come and see it with their eyes. What we learned here in Luke and what we learned throughout all of the scriptures is that unless the sovereign God opens the eyes of the heart to the realities of the risen Christ, the kingdom will not grow and advance. Faith will not be given. It's important for us to think about that when we think about the proclamation of the gospel and the growth of the church throughout the world. It's the work of a sovereign God using faithful servants who proclaim his word and that God gives faith in and through the power of that word. So Jesus comes. They do not recognize the risen Lord. And that makes way for this interaction between Jesus and Cleopas, where Cleopas recites his creed. He recites his creed. The conversation unfolds. Jesus comes up to them and says, what are you speaking about? Now clearly they they weren't, uh, wherever they were on the road, they weren't hiding the content of their conversation. You think about perhaps being on on a train in Chicago on that glorious November morning in 2016, the day after Game 7 of the World Series where the Cubs finally and wonderfully ended the long drought of their championships. And two people are talking about the home run to lead off the game and the crazy manager decisions and the ups and downs of that game. And someone comes up to them and says, excuse me, what are you talking about? The instinct of both people in that conversation would be, you must be the only person in all of Chicagoland that doesn't realize what has happened. And that's how Cleopas responds uh, to, to Jesus here. I had no personal vendetta in revisiting those emotions in my heart about Game 7 of the World Series, just to illustrate the point. You must be the only person, Jesus, who does not know uh, what is going on in and around Jerusalem. You must be the only one. So Jesus says, oh, well, what, what things? What things are you talking about that everyone supposedly knows? And then Cleopas gives this long report. It's kind of a creed, but it's a creed of the faithless. Scholars call this the gospel according to Cleopas. He has this wonderful exposition of the news of Jesus Christ, but he doesn't put all the pieces together. It's the creed of the faithless. It's the creed that depends on the human eye. If you were dependent upon the human eye, this is the creed you would come up with for the life and the story of Jesus. It's also important to notice that um, Cleopas, being a, certainly a minor character in the Gospel of Luke, he has all of this space to expound what, what he says about Jesus' life. Luke gives him all of that space in his Gospel. So that's significant. We need to understand that and recognize that. 
It seems that Cleopas, with apologies to uh, the ladies, has regarded the word or the news that came back from the women who went to the tomb as idle tales. Remember, we read last week that most of the men heard the reports of the women and they said, oh, these are idle tales. Maybe Cleopas believes that these women were more given to being gullible, but he is not so easily tricked. Of course, the, the, the glory of this is that God saw it as wonderfully fit, as an encouragement to you ladies, to first reveal this wonderful news to those faithful women at the tomb. So Cleopas, as he's expounding his creed, says, here's what happens. Jesus lived. He was powerful in word and deed. We regarded him as a prophet, and, uh, but he was killed. But he was killed. And then he follows that up by saying, and we had hoped that he was the one to come, that he was the Messiah. In other words, he says he was crucified. And that proves to me that he was not the Messiah. It boils down to an incomplete knowledge of the scriptures, what Luke is going to show us. Matthew Henry says this. He says that Cleopas made the ground of his despair that which, if he had understood it rightly, was the ground of his hope. The death of Christ is the ground of our hope as Christians, that he was willing to go all the way to death for us. That's the ground of our hope. Here, it's the ground of Cleopas' despair. So it's quite fascinating, isn't it? That as he's expounding that, and then in verse 24, uh, he, he, he mentions the rumor of the resurrection, says it's now the third day, which seems to be some kind of, uh, he has some knowledge of what Jesus himself predicted. But then he ends his creed by saying, but him... They did not see. There, Cleopas makes it clear that in his mind, the way that he's processing it is that if we did see Jesus, if we saw him, then uh, we would be able to believe, no problem. Then we could tell the story the way that these women are hoping. The irony, of course, is that Cleopas says that as he's looking the risen Christ in the eye. And he has not recognized him. He has not recognized him. Apparently what Luke is emphasizing for us is that the human eye avails nothing in the realm of salvation. The human eye avails nothing. Just as we have seen throughout the ministry of Jesus, throughout the crucifixion of Jesus, revealing who he is. But time after time, people misunderstanding who he is, what he has come to do. The fatal flaw, perhaps, in the mind of Cleopas is just, you could just change one word and it would make all of the difference. Has the Messiah come to redeem from Rome? Or has the Messiah come to redeem from sin? Has the Messiah come to redeem from Rome? If he has, then yes, the crucifixion proves that he is not the Messiah. But if he has come to redeem from sin, then he must go all of the way to the cross. Fundamentally, really spiritually, as we think about this, it, it's, it, goes, it brings us back to that first part of our catechism. What must you know in order to live and die in the only comfort of Christ? Well, the first part of that is you must know how great your sin and misery are. Unless you know how great your sin and your misery are, the gospel will not thrill you. The gospel will not uh, make you overflow with gratitude and praise to God. You need to begin at that fundamental place. In the midst of a world that wants to say no one, no one is sinful. 
You make up your own law. You make up your own right and wrong. Whatever's good for you, that's how you live. As God's people, we need to remind ourselves again and again and again how great our sin and our misery are. He came to redeem from sin. And the Bible lays out this pattern for us. So as we close today, the last idea is this. Jesus teaches us how to read the scriptures in that every story whispers his name. Every story whispers his name and every page shows us his pattern. Every page shows us his pattern of suffering before glory. He begins with a rebuke as he hears this creed of the faithless, creed of the human eye. He says, you fools, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter his glory? It's not just what the prophets have written, it's what Jesus himself has said. Chapter 17, verse 25, Jesus said, first, the Messiah must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. He said earlier, I must be handed over uh, into the hands of the Gentiles. I must be crucified and raised on the third day. He's even become that clear in telling his followers, his disciples, what he must do. Jesus' point here is that if you go and search the scriptures, you will find basically two things. Basically two things. And the first is this. You will find a common thread woven throughout of a foreshadowing of the central figure of God's redemptive plan, and that's Jesus Christ. Right? Every story whispers his name. Every story whispers his name. You will find all kinds of foreshadowing of this central figure. And the second thing you will find is this is that God lays out the pattern in which the Messiah is to come. And that is suffering before glory. From beginning to end, the scriptures are about Jesus Christ. And don't misunderstand me, I'm not trying to be dismissive and say if we come across difficult texts that don't really necessarily have an abundantly clear meaning at the surface, we just say, oh, it's about Jesus and move on. That's not the point at all. And that's not the point of this passage. Jesus' point is that if you were to go and give yourself to the study of the scriptures, give yourself to it, you would not have struggled with the idea that the Messiah was to suffer, that the Messiah had to go through what I did. So this is what Jesus does, beginning with Moses. He goes and he unfolds the scriptures to them. He opens up their eyes. I have often thought that this must be the greatest sermon that never was recorded. If there's one place where we could ask the Lord to give us just a few more chapters in the Bible, this would be the place where I think many of us would land because how glorious it would be to see exactly how Jesus opens up the minds of these disciples and opens up their hearts. What were the the pictures that he focused on? What were the shadows of Christ that, that he thought were most useful in bringing about their understanding of what the Messiah was to go through? One reason I believe we don't have this recorded for us is because God would rather give us the truth of the principle so that we might go back to the scriptures remembering that every story whispers his name and every page shows us his pattern so that we might go back to the scriptures and search them and seek the grace of God for a richer understanding of the work of Christ and the work of the Messiah. God wants us to learn by experience that we must read the scriptures with Christ-focused glasses. I remember when the light first went on for me with this. I remember that 
I was reading the Bible like I, I thought I was supposed to, but I was sitting down with one of my closest friends, someone I went to seminary with, and we're reading 2 Samuel, and I, I'm, I'm thinking I'm getting it. I'm, I'm, I'm telling him, no, this is, this is what this means. And then in one fell swoop, he, he, he just pointed me to the glory of Christ and how it shows us Jesus. And from that point on, I began to understand that, that every story whispers his name and every page shows us his pattern. Matthew Henry says, there's a golden thread of gospel grace that runs through the whole Old Testament. You think of the first proclamation of the gospel in Genesis 3. The Lord, as he's speaking to the serpent, says, he shall crush your head, but you shall bruise his heel. In other words, the Messiah will win an ultimate victory, but it will not be without injury to himself. We think of Abraham, who was promised a land to inherit, but wandered on the earth. And had to look beyond the horizon of this world in order to take rest in the promises of God. We think of Joseph, who for all intents and purposes is dead in uh, the minds of his family. His brothers make up that story about him. And he goes through the deepest depths of loneliness and betrayal. He wanders through life battling sin and temptation. But because of his righteousness, he is vindicated to his family and to the world. We think of Samson, who begins with this wonderful, glorious strength, but then uh, he is stripped of all of that strength, and that pictures for us the humility of our Lord, who left the glories of heaven. And then Samson, when he is stripped of his strength, his greatest victory is in his death, whispers the name of Jesus. We think of King David, who was anointed as king, but then spent the next several years on the run, going through the wilderness, running away from Saul, who was seeking to, ki- to take his life, to kill David. We think of the unblemished lamb for the sin sacrifice and how the blood that was spilled must come from one who is perfect. We think of the servant songs and the crown of those in Isaiah chapter 53, where the Messiah bears our griefs and he carries our sorrows. He's smitten by God and he's afflicted. He's wounded for our transgressions. There's the anguish of his soul. Through that, he bears our iniquities. So the enduring lesson that Luke is bringing before us is that the very thing that convinces Cleopas that Jesus was not the Messiah, that is where we go to prove that he is. His suffering. Because his suffering preceded his glory. Matthew Henry once again. Jesus shows these men that the sufferings of Christ, which were a stumbling block to them and made them unwilling to believe his glory, were really the appointed way to his glory. His sufferings, the appointed way to his glory. And he could not go to it any other way. His sufferings were not only no objection against his being the Messiah, but really a proof of it, as the afflictions of the saints are in evidence of their sonship. And they were so far from ruining their expectations that really they were the foundation of their hope. Jesus could not have been a savior if he had not been a sufferer. Christ's undertaking our salvation was voluntary, but having undertaken it, it was necessary that he should suffer and die. First Peter says, Christ suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He suffered in order to leave you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 1 John 2, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. This is an encouragement for us not only so that we can 
remind ourselves of the surety of Christ being our Savior and the Messiah, that he followed that biblical pattern of suffering before glory. But then also, as Matthew Henry says, that the afflictions of the saints are an evidence of your sonship because you're following Jesus on the way of the cross of suffering before glory. In this world, Jesus says, you will have, you will have affliction, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So many who claim to bear the name of Christ still have the mindset of Cleopas today, that an appearance of defeat is crushing to our hope. This is particularly a huge challenge today. You go back a few centuries and suffering was the norm and ease in life was the exception. That doesn't mean that uh, they, they were more blessed to live in that time, but you go back three, four hundred years, suffering was the norm, ease was the exception. Now, ease is the norm and suffering is the exception. The prosperity teacher, the Financial Times this week, you all would know his name if I mentioned him, uh, had this story about him in the Financial Times. They asked him, you know, why do you drive a $300,000 car? Why do you live in a home that's worth $14 million? Why do you live with all this lavish uh, things in your life? And he said, uh, this is what this pastor said, if anyone tells you to deny yourself, that person is the devil. If anyone tells you to deny yourself, he said, that person is the devil. Jesus said, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. When your doctrine causes you to call Jesus the devil, there is a huge problem indeed. The pattern that we see in Scripture is suffering before glory so that we need not be surprised, brothers and sisters, at the fiery trial that comes upon you. And when you, when you suffer faithfully, on the way of the cross and in the path of obedience, what you're doing is you're entering the suffering of your Savior. I'm, I've been so humbled to be your pastor and, and you all set a wonderful example in this of suffering righteously for the kingdom of God, the various things that God has brought into the lives of so many of us over the past months and years. Continue clinging to the gospel. Just as the light finally went on for these two on the road to Emmaus, so may we too live in the shadow of the resurrection. Knowing that in the shadow of the resurrection, as it becomes the surest ground of our hope, the afflictions of our lives become an evidence of our sonship, an evidence of being the children of God. So continue to model the humble faith of those who suffer before glory. Because that is what your Savior did for you. Cling to him and see it through. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and your gospel. We pray that you will build us up. Build us up to the road ahead. That we might ever cling to Christ by faith and trust in his work. But see the pattern. See the pattern that he laid out for us that we would not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon us in this world. Through the pain, through the suffering, Father, give us grace and strength to look to your promises, to look to the life that we have. Father, protect us by your grace. Keep us until the last day. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.